This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Your ears do not deceive you. You have just entered the Cryptid Creator Corner brought to you by your friends at Comic Book Yeti. So without further ado, let's get on to the interview. This is Byron O'Neill, media editor for Comic Book Yeti, sitting down today with comics creator Steve Fox. You might know Steve from some of his other projects, a favorite of mine, Rainbow Bridge, or his recent Archer and Armstrong Forever from Valiant. But today we're talking about his Marvel nostalgia, which I hate to feel this old, but we're going to talk about it anyway, uh, take on X-Men 92. So thanks for joining me today, Steve, the fantastic Mr. Fox. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Um, so... I went into this with a big question mark, not entirely quite sure how to feel. Um, that later Claremont, Jim Lee era X-Men was the top of my poll back in the day. I love the team. I love the villains even more. So what made you kind of want to do the time work again? Well, so Marvel had already had the plan to do a 30th anniversary book. And I, like you, uh, it was very shocked to realize it had been 30 years. <laughs> um, I'm a child of the late 80s. So t- 10 years ago is the 80s to me. <laughs> so to realize that 1992 was 30 years ago is sobering. Um, but no, they, they approached me, Jordan White, the lead of the X-Men group, because uh, he had read Spider-Ham, which I, I did at Scholastic uh, with Shadia Amin. Um, and he thought I'd be a good fit for it. And it really felt like a lot of stars aligning because I've been an X-Men fan my entire life, um, ever since Pride of the X-Men and the earliest Toy Biz action figures, the early 90s comics. I, I really have been a constant reader. I've never not read the X-Men books. Um, and not only that, but a couple of years ago, I started reading um, everything from giant size on chronologically, okay. uh, just so I could say that I had read it all. And... Uh, right around the time Jordan reached out to me, I, I hit 1992. So I, uh, uh, you know, there are quite a few crossovers in the late eighties and early nineties. So the reader sure. slowed down a little as I was getting every, every tie in. Um, but I was right in the middle of that era when he reached out to me, I was reading executioner song. So it, it really felt like, uh, everything was just lining up perfectly. 
And I'm such a huge fan of the current Krakoan era in the books. So the chance to get to adapt that as if it was an arc of the X-Men animated series was too good to pass up. Yeah, I mean, you really had your pick, I guess, of who you wanted to include in the team after reading the first, you know, the first two issues there. Most of the crew are like blue and gold era members, you know. Um, So how do you decide to cut or is it just as simple as the blue and gold teams? Well, it was really just as simple as who the leads were on the cartoon. So even though this is, you know, technically its own continuity, it's, of course, heavily, heavily inspired by the animated series. And one of the fun things about the current X-Men line is that, you know, almost every mutant can exist, uh, can come back to life, can be on the teams, and they can wear, you know, any costume in their history. They switch it up. So to really make this field distinct from, you know, Jerry's book and Ben's book and Teeny's book, it, it needed to hone in on that cast that we all know and love from the animated series. Because, you know, as, as much as all of those characters have gone on to do really interesting things, we don't actually get to see them interact all that much. Like when's the last time Beast and Gambit had a significant scene together? Um, so putting just that core cast together really made it feel like it. And then filling out the margins it's a combination of, you know, fun Easter eggs and who I really want to use and, and who I love, but also who had prominent moments in the cartoon. So Cable and Bishop were recurring guest stars. Um, Psylocke has a pretty significant role toward the end. Uh, Warren Worthington shows up multiple times. So it felt like sort of the, um, the B tier was also pretty clear. And then everything beyond that was just a matter of fun cameos. And by the time we're done, Salva will have drawn over 160 different Marvel characters. Oh, wow. Because uh, we are just filling up every inch of Krakoa. Uh, we're filling up every inch of the gala when we get to that part. Um, so it's it just a really fun opportunity to anyone who showed up on the cartoon, anyone who existed before 1992, and a select few characters from after that that really, really um, embody the 90s all, all show up. Yeah, we kind of leaned into to Jubilee a little bit there. So, I mean, everybody loves, you know, her, her pink bubblegum era look. But, okay, so why Jubilee? What's, what's, <laughs> what role is she playing? So Jubilee fulfills our Moira role. So for readers who may not be familiar with the X-Men line, I, one, I don't know why you'd be listening to this if you weren't. But two, if you take a chance on this, um, you know, the Hickman era, the Krakoa era, hinges on this reveal that Moira McTaggart is actually a mutant who can reset all of reality when she dies and, and retain knowledge of her past life. And when it came time to develop this series, you know, my guiding ethos was this has to be distinct enough to be worth your $25. Because if this is just a condensed version of what the main line has been doing for three years, you already have Wikipedia for that. You have Twitter, you have the books. They're, you know, they're not that old. You can go read all of them. So this is really more of like a what if story. Yeah. And the fun of What If to me, and also the fun of Exiles, the original Exiles run, um, Judd Winnick and and everyone else, was seeing how things change, how that butterfly effect occurs when you you change a few key moments of a book or a few key characters. Jubilee specifically, uh, it was really twofold. One, I needed someone who, (laughs) if I look at it from the right angle, the comic book science makes sense. So her powers being fireworks, 
I was like, okay, well, you know, a firework is basically a small explosion. And, and what's the biggest explosion of all time is the Big Bang. So I could kind of like squint and make it work for comic book science. Uh, and two is, is Jubilee is so emblematic of the early 90s. You know, she was created in 1989. Um, and she is kind of like this Bart Simpson mall rat frozen in time in a lot of ways. And when you think of the cartoon, because the cartoon opens with that Night of the Sentinels two-parter, your entryway to the X-Men was Jubilee. And for a whole generation of kids, it was Jubilee. Um, you know, her time might've been a little briefer than Kitty's, but it lasted longer than some of the other entryway characters. So she just felt like the perfect way to, to freeze this moment in the early nineties, especially because she's gone through so much as a character in the time since, uh, from Generation X to becoming a vampire to becoming a, you know, a surrogate mom that, taking this preteen version and putting her at the center of the book just up to the 90s quotient dramatically as as kind of a child of that era myself and and you as well you know so so going into this you know what what adjectives jump out to you to even describe that 90s era and you know kind of how did you weave those elements into the story oh my gosh you know i feel like a lot of people jump to the word extreme and of course that's an element but to me, a lot of it is just earnestness. Like when I read those comics, yes, they are over the top. They are wild and colorful and, and costumes get completely impractical for a while, but there's no shame involved. There's no second guessing. It's like, yeah, the coolest thing I can put on this page is a character who's covered in blades, whose power is to you know cut you and, and make your blood light on fire. <laughs> like, and there is no shame at all in that idea. And I think that's kind of the beauty of comics that something can work on a page that is never going to work on the screen or in real life. Uh, and that early nineties, everyone working on those books, I think just really believed in what they were doing. And there was no, no time wasted being self-conscious about it. And also it was a very forward thinking time. Like, that era was not super concerned with looking back at what came before and diving into, you know, minutia of continuity or anything like that. It was like, let's, you know, new characters, new villains, new scenarios, acolytes, you know, everyone else is just throwing all these things on the page. And, and we're still kind of like picking over some of those concepts and, and seeing what can be made out of them. And I think that just speaks to like the boundless creativity of the era. Yeah. I mean, the entire thing so far is, is much more lighthearted to me. And, and that is emblematic of the nineties for sure, you know, certainly more than the current, you know, kind of Hickman architect run, you know, that for me, myself personally is maybe even a little too heavy. So how do you strike that delicate balance of capturing the nostalgia of that era with blending in some of those new Krakoan narrative elements as well? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I write this thinking, imagining it's an episode of the cartoon. So, you know, there are times where we're pushing it a little bit, you know, maybe there's a decapitation here or there, whatever. It's something you might not have seen on the cartoon, but ultimately, as much as I love and respect the current era, and I'm a huge fan of, of everything that's been going on since 2019, my ultimate loyalty with this book is to 1992, because that is, you know, that is what people are picking this up to see. And if you are not a fan of the early 90s and you're a fan of the current stuff hopefully you'll get a kick out of seeing it reinterpreted but 
the guiding light here is is to keep it in the 90s and to keep it in that animated vibe where like you say it's a little lighthearted and maybe they're serious topics or you know characters dealing with serious things but it's all through the filter of like a 10 year old could conceivably read this and not feel that things are going way over their head or that they're getting too um you know bogged down in, in seriousness or grim feelings because one thing the 90s were not was uh, particularly like grim or ponderous for sure not so, that I think the current line is, but like you said, it, it's quite serious at times. And John's a big builder, um, you know, a big planner. And they've also had, you know, at this point, I, I would have to imagine well over 100 issues combined to tell this story. And, and Salva and I get five. So it's like big and loud and fun and at fast paced. So how much of a lease did you get from the Marvel editors to kind of do what you wanted? Well, I've, I've said other places. I feel very spoiled that this is my first uh, Marvel work because, you know, we didn't have to coordinate with anybody because it's a distinct continuity. So every character I wanted to use, you know, every twist I wanted to put in, uh, Jordan and Lauren, my editors, were, were really behind us 100% on making it both a loving tribute to these two different eras, but also its own distinct story. You know, if, if you've read every single comic that's come out since 2019, there are going to be new twists and turns for you in X-Men 92. It's not just going to repeat those beats. Um, but no, I, I feel very spoiled that if I wanted to, you know, I want to put Dazzler in here. I want to put Emma Frost. I want to have Captain America. You know, whoever I wanted to show up could show up. <laughs> and like characters that needed to die off briefly or go through changes or unexpected resurrections. We had a lot of leeway to tell our own story. So did you ever have that, oh shit moment, what have I done trying to blend all this stuff together? Or? I, you know, it's ultimately up to the reader to tell me if I succeeded or not, but Fair. it felt very smooth to me in the process um, because we st and now all the solicits are out. So readers know broadly, um, you know, what we're touching on, but we started with the polls of, okay, House of X, Powers of Tin, Tin of Swords, the Gala, inferno so it, it was actually really neat to be able to to hone in on the big events of of 2019 to 2021 and say like okay these are the beats we're going to hit this is how we're going to structure the book and kind of build it around those moments okay well let's talk about the bad guys because those are my favorite so <laughs> you know orcas and the sentinels which honestly could have been a 90s era ska band i think <laughs> you know lady deathstrike makes an appearance cameron hodge trask you know, how are they different this time? Yeah, so one of the fun things about Orcus in the main line is that there are a lot of new faces, right? Like the Dr. Stasis characters that are, are brand new, which is very exciting as a reader. Putting this in the 90s, I wanted to pull from all the, you know, the love to hate them anti-mutant characters that we saw back then. Um, so like you said, Cameron Hodge, uh, Graydon Creed, of course, was a huge deal for a little bit in the 90s. Um, G.W. Bridge, who, you know, sometimes likes the mutants, sometimes gets a little sick of them. Uh, and Lady Deathstrike, who's one of my favorite characters in, in Marvel history. Um, so, no, I wanted to, to make this Orcus kind of a more recognizable cast of faces and pick from characters who had appeared on the cartoon. So I felt like, okay, one thing the cartoon was notorious for doing was making the storylines fit the cast they had. So of course, in the real Dark Phoenix saga, Gambit has not even existed yet. But in the cartoon, of course, Gambit's going to play a role because 
you know, Gambit's the charming rogue on the team, no pun intended. Um, or like Bishop becoming central to days of future past, things like that. So when it came time to cast Orcus, it was like, let's see which assholes have been on the cartoon who can fill this out rather than trying to, you know, redesign Dr. Stasis to look 90s or something like that. Okay. Well, and, and you've talked about this clear visual nod to the, the much adored X-Men animated series. You know, was that something that when you, you brought, or when Salva X-Men entered the picture of the artist, you know, was that something you were specifically looking for in the artist? Um, yeah, I knew when this book got off the ground that there was really like two directions you could take it visually. One would be to find someone who does something very much like Jim Lee or, you know, other 90s contemporaries, the Cuberts, what have you or to have someone who leaned more animated. And I had really hoped from the beginning we would get someone who was more animated so that this would feel distinct. And Salva is such a perfect, I don't want to say compromise because that sounds negative, but he's so experienced. He's done so many Deadpool books and you know Exiles and all these fun projects, but he adapted his style to be a little more fluid and animated to fit this run. Um, and another big reference point he pulled from, which is a big inspiration for me, was Marvel versus Capcom and some of the Capcom fighting games of the early 90s, because those also had to simplify the Jim Lee art style into something that could be animated with very fluid frames. Wow, the video game reference. It's funny how all this stuff comes around, because I think the solicits for this month included something with Fortnite. So video games are rearing their heads <laughs> yet again. Yes, and, and video games ended up being uh, an inspiration a couple different times throughout the book, including when we do our version of Ten of Swords, which is very much X of Swords in this, there's no tarot card involved. It really is kind of like the Mortal Kombat video game version of the tournament. So it, it was fun to tap into to that feeling and just bring back all my like arcade memories from childhood. Well, and you have Israel doing the coloring for the book. You know, I, I was when I was doing my research and, and I didn't know you were basically as old as I am. So I was wondering if any of the three of you were actually around to read them in the early 90s, or did you have to actually research a color palette that fits? So, Yeah, I actually don't know how old Israel is. I think Salva's around our age too. Um, but Israel's doing fantastic work. And I think, you know, ultimately Israel kind of marries what the modern color palette looks like with a bit of an animated edge. So like, you, you know, you could have done this book in very flat colors and have it look like of the era. And I think Israel struck a fun balance in between. So if you're coming off of reading the main line and you're not used to what books look like in the early 90s, you're not going to be like totally thrown for a loop. Yeah, it was fun. It, it uh, reminded me, honestly, of like that California vibe, the TNC Surf and Skate uh, <laughs> era kind of stuff. So. <laughs> Well, my, my absolute favorite part of the whole thing so far is the mix the mixtape, you know, the, the inner circle jams that made me laugh so hard, especially Apocalypse. So how much fun did you have putting that little gem of an insert together? That was so much fun. And honestly, I have to give so much credit to the design team because, you know, in the main line of books, the data pages are, you know, text on, on a white background and they serve a really cool function. Um, and when we did this, I, I said, like, listen. If, if that's what I can have, I can definitely work with it. But what do you think if we tried to, you know, make these look pretty 90s and do different things each time? And the design team has just gone so above and beyond. The mixtape one cracked me up because, uh, you know, they made it look like a, a Xerox, like, you know, um, zine flyer. And some of the pages, some of the design pages coming up in future issues, uh, without giving away too much, you know, I said very influenced by video games. So you'll see stuff like that. 
influenced by like Dungeons and Dragons, um, creature manuals. And it's just been really fun to see what they come up with each time. And I see those fairly late in the process. Like with Salva, I see everything from um, thumbnails through to, to final art. The design pages are kind of the cherry on top. So it's like this fun little surprise right before the book goes to print. Okay. And it uh, was fun pulling all the songs for that mixtape. Oh, uh, it's making sure everything was from 1992 like from 89 to 92 what would be popular in the era uh and and picking one for each member of the team was a lot of fun so could we see a further expansion of this idea beyond the miniseries or is this a one and done because x-force would be so much fun and then i could get somebody's (laughs) rather grandiose take let's say of cable out of my head i mean listen i i would do this until the cows come home right now it's five issues and we really went to leave it all on the field that's why there are so many cameos and so many nods um i have a very clear idea of what i would do next but as of now it is just these five issues okay okay so what other projects you got going on right now simmering i know archer and armstrong is is going along with valiant yeah so i have a few things coming up at Marvel that I can't talk about yet, but I am very happy to have other projects in the works there. Uh, and then Archer and Armstrong Forever is, is really my other main focus right now. Um, so it's my first ongoing series and Valiant's been such a dream to work with. Uh, I'm doing that book with Marcio Fiorito and, and Alex G and, and Haas uh, and our editors, Rob and Audrey. And uh, I was a big fan of Archer and Armstrong when Valiant first relaunched about a decade ago now. Um, and they've been so much fun to tap into. You know, when Rob reached out to me about pitching for Valiant, we realized really quickly that we we're both big fans of the franchise and Archer and Armstrong had been off shelves for a couple of years. But writing a duo, like specifically a duo, not a team or a solo book is such a fun dynamic to get to pick apart. And I think that they really stand out in comics as, as a friendship. And there are lots of characters that are friends. Like everyone loves to do Spider-Man and Johnny Storm or Batman and Superman, but characters that are like defined by their friendships are a little rarer. You have like Booster Gold and uh, Blue Beetle. And and I think Archer and Armstrong are are really up there and and to play off of that odd couple dynamic and to lean into the action adventure and the globe trotting aspects, but with that edge of comedy um, has just really hit a sweet spot for me. So I always want to give people who prominently include their dog on social media a chance to gush about them. So tell me about Cora. Cora is lovely. Um, I had a Zoom call earlier that was overlapped with her dinner time and she was whining and and standing on the couch behind me. As they do. Um, As they do. We actually just sent off her DNA test. So we're excited to find out what mutt hybrid she actually is. We don't know. Um, we like to say she's part Chihuahua, but my boyfriend's convinced it's going to come back 0% Chihuahua and like shake our faith in the world. Mini Pin. Um, I think Mini Pin is definitely in there. But no, she's a big sweetie. And we moved in January um, to a quieter area and she now is like flourishing outside. We live by a huge nature trail and it turns out she actually loves going outside. She just hated going outside in the middle of the city. So last question, because everybody's dying to know, what does Scott Summers keep in all those belt pockets? And you can't say it's secrets because we've already been down this road before on Twitter. Uh, Honestly, so I love Scott and I always have. I have a tattoo of a cat in Cyclops' outfit. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, And as a kid, I identified with him because he is kind of the consummate Boy Scout or he was in the 90s. He's gone through his revolutionary phase now, but 
in in the 90s scott was kind of like the stick in the mud who wanted to impress his father figure teacher and uh i really identified with that because i was also kind of a stick in the mud who wanted to do extra homework so i think the the boring but true answer is he probably has everything batman has and more because he is prepared <laughs> for every eventuality there's some jerky there's multi-purpose knives carabiners he, he's got everything he could need to uh, survive a week in the savage land all right so and where a can couple every- pictures of gene of course of course yes so where can everyone follow you online you can find me at Steve underscore Fox, F-O-X-E, on Twitter, um, which is a site I absolutely hate. <laughs> and you can also find me at stevefox.com, um, which I keep very updated with all my upcoming work. Well, issue one is out in the wild now. Issue two, we're expecting when exactly? June 1st, along with a second printing of issue one, because uh, the first printing sold out. Okay. Well, I, I really enjoyed the, the step back in time, which is both making me Regret some of my fashion choices back then, <laughs> but simultaneously longing for my vision skateboard hat. So, you know, make sure to check it out. Big thanks to Steve for joining me tonight. Thank you for having me. Yep. This is Byron O'Neill on behalf of all of us at Comic Book Getty. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time. This is Byron O'Neill, one of your hosts of the Cryptic Creator Corner, brought to you by Comic Book Getty. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of our podcast. Please rate, review, subscribe, all that good stuff. It lets us know how we're doing, and more importantly, how we can improve. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode of the Cryptid Creator Corner, maybe you would enjoy our sister podcast, Into the Comics Cave. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.